Before we open the word, let's look to the Lord in prayer once more. Our Father, we are amazed as we think that our Lord took upon Himself our sins. He had no sins of his own, no thoughts, no words, no deeds, no motives that were wrong in him. And yet he went to a cross and he suffered the things we have done, things we have thought and said. Motives of our heart that were selfish and sinful. So we open the word tonight, we pray that you would once again wash our minds with the water of the word. Change the way we think. Cause us to rejoice. Sanctify us with your truth. We might go from here changed. And we'll thank you for what you do tonight. For it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. If you would take your Bibles, let's turn to the book of Matthew to start with tonight. Matthew chapter 20. So we've already noted tonight we have set aside this service to focus our attention squarely on the ministry, the sacrifice, and the cross work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this Good Friday gathering is all about. I believe it's absolutely fitting and appropriate that we do this each year on Good Friday, whenever possible. I want to take these few minutes before we turn our attention to the table tonight to consider a rather specific aspect of our Lord's story and His cross work on our behalf. In fact, the enormous reality we've been singing about, the enormous reality that we want to wrestle with tonight is actually wrapped up in two little words in the text. And those two words are these, the cup, the cup. You know, the book of Matthew records an interesting exchange between Jesus and the mother of two of His disciples. We studied it in our study of Matthew a while back. I want to start there tonight in verse 17 of this text, Matthew 20, verse 17. I want to read down through verse 23 to set the stage for what I want us to consider tonight. So let me read it aloud. You follow along Here's what Matthew writes, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. 
Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. These are positions of honor, obviously. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Do you note in that text, Jesus had just told them that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. That's where he's headed. He's going to suffer and to die. And in abundantly clear terms then, Jesus was teaching these disciples that they would have to suffer for his name as well. Just a few short chapters later, he would teach them that the way to greatness in the kingdom, the way to greatness in the kingdom of God was through lowliness, through sacrifice, through service, through suffering. He made this abundantly plain, Matthew chapter 23, where we read this, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Sadly, even on the night of Christ's betrayal as they sat at the table with Christ for supper that night. He had to correct them about this again. This was a pretty recurring theme with these men, as it often is with us. In Luke 22, verses 24 through 26, we read, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Are you catching the theme? You see in the repetition here? And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Later, the apostle Paul would pick up this same theme as other writers in the New Testament will. And he said to young Timothy in his first letter to that young protege, he wrote these familiar words, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As you know, we could, we could keep chasing this theme. We could see this all over the text of the Scriptures. Clearly, this is not an anomaly. This is not abnormal. This is the consistent teaching of the New Testament. But we need to understand that there was something different about the cup that Jesus was about to drink by His Father and the cup that Jesus said He would share with His disciples. You told Him there's a cup you'll drink and you will drink it. You'll share in these sufferings. But there was more to the cup that Jesus drank than the one that the disciples drank. In fact, three out of the four gospel writers actually record a prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of His betrayal. Do you remember these words, Matthew 26, 39? What do we read there? And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
Mark chapter 14, Mark records it as well in verse 35 and 36. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Luke records it as well in Luke 22, verses 41 and 42. And he, Jesus, withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The fourth gospel writer records Christ's determination, though, to do the Father's will concerning the cup. In John chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, we read this, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He just prayed. Take it from me. And he had discerned the Father would not. And he was not about to let the disciples get in the way of his cup either. I will drink what I have been given by the Father to drink. I think we need to stop here for a moment and just clarify what exactly was this cup then? What had the Father given Jesus to drink? Well, friends, repeatedly the Scriptures use this imagery of the cup and they directly connect it to the reality of God's wrath against sin. Prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 28 and verse 15 wrote it this way, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Isaiah 51 and verse 17, Isaiah writes, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. In the book of Revelation, this picture is taken up again by John. Revelation 14, verses 9 and 10, we read, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. It's pretty unmistakable throughout the Scriptures. This cup filled with the wrath of God against sin. We might rightly conclude then that the worst part of the cup that Christ drank on this Good Friday some 2,000 plus years ago now was not the physical suffering. The disciples would taste some of that. It was not so much the physical suffering as it was the spiritual suffering he faced by bearing the full weight of God's righteous anger, his wrath against sin, my sin, your sin. 
Let me put it this way, on the basis of 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, the worst part of the sinless one's suffering was being made sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. One pastor, meditating on these realities some years back, masterfully captured, I think, this horrific reality in a a piece he wrote entitled, The Father's Cup. I just want to read you an excerpt from it. It won't be on the screen. I just want you to listen. Jesus hangs between earth and heaven. Filthy with human discharge on the outside and now filthy with human wickedness on the inside. The Father speaks. Son of man, why have you sinned against me and heaped scorn on my great glory? You are self-sufficient and self-righteous, consumed with yourself, puffed up and selfishly ambitious. You rob me of my glory and worship what's inside of you instead of looking out to the one who created you. You are greedy, lazy, Gluttonous, you are a slanderer and a gossip. You are a lying, conceited, ungrateful, cruel adulterer. You practice sexual immorality. You make pornography. You fill your mind with vulgarity. You exchange my truth for a lie and worship the creature instead of the creator. And so you are given up to your homosexual passions, dressing immodestly, lusting after what is forbidden. With all your heart, you love perverse pleasures. You hate your brother. You murder him with the bullets of anger that are fired from your own heart. You kill babies for your convenience. You oppress the poor and deal slaves and ignore the needy. You persecute my people. You love money and prestige and honor. You put a cloak of outward piety on and inside you are filled with dead men's bones, you hypocrite. You are lukewarm You are easily enticed by the world. You covet and can't have, so you murder. You are filled with envy and rage and bitterness and unforgiveness. You blame others for your sin and are too proud to even call it sin. You are never slow to speak. You have a razor tongue that lashes and cuts with its criticism and sinful judgment. Your words do not impart grace. Instead, your mouth is a fountain of condemnation and guilt and obscene talk. You are a false prophet leading people astray. 
You mock your parents. You have no self-control. You are a betrayer who stirs up division and factions. You are a drunkard and a thief. You're, you're, anxious, you're an anxious coward. You do not trust me. You blaspheme against me. You're an unsubmissive wife. You're a lazy, disengaged husband. You file for divorce and you crush the parable of my love for the church. You're a pimp and a drug dealer. You practice divination and worship demons. The list of your sins goes on and on and on and on. And I hate these things inside of you. I'm filled with disgust. Indignation for your sin consumes me. Now drink my cup. And Jesus does. He drinks for hours. He downs every drop of the scalding liquid of God's own hatred of sin mingled with His white hot wrath against that sin. This is the Father's cup. Omnipotent hatred and anger for the sins of every generation, past, present, future. Omnipotent wrath directed at the one naked man hanging on a cross. The father can no longer bear to look at his beloved son. His heart's treasure The mirror image of himself. So he looks away. Jesus pushes himself upward and he howls to heaven. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Silence. Separation. Friends, please don't miss the point of all of this. Can you imagine the righteous judge of heaven cursing and crushing the perfectly sinless Jesus Christ for all those sins he never committed. Can you fathom the the spotless Lamb of God being accused as a liar? A murderer, a a fraud, a, a coward, a pimp, a drug dealer, a pornographer, a slave trader, an adulterer, a disobedient child. How does that even compute? He did nothing wrong. But we did. And yet... He willingly, willingly drank the wrath of God for sinners, the worst of sinners. Don't miss this. 
He did all of this for you and for me. Brothers and sisters, so much scripture was fulfilled in Christ's willing sacrifice for us on the cross. So much of it pointed forward to this, and so much of it later points back. This is the centerpiece of redemptive history of all of eternity. Just listen to the Word of God. What I want to do is I want you to bathe yourself. I want you to bathe your mind and bathe your heart with the Word. I'm just going to read some Scripture. I want, I want you to hear it. I want you to think about it. I want you to meditate on it. I want us to go to the table tonight with our minds washed with the words of God. We read portions of this earlier. I want to go back to it. Isaiah chapter 53 Verses 3 through 6. Listen to the language of the exchange here. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace with his wounds. We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peter, quoting from that same portion of Isaiah's prophecy, described the theological reason for the cross this way. In 1 Peter chapter 2, listen to the language. Jesus committed no sin. Listen, Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by His wounds. You have been healed. The writer of Hebrews describes the sufficiency and the eternality of Christ's self-sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10, you remember these words? And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Why do they keep offering sacrifices? Because we keep sinning. But those sacrifices can't take away sin. But, but, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He doesn't keep standing. He sat down at the right hand 
of God. Why? He said it on the cross. It is finished. It's finished. There no longer remains any sacrifice for sin. Paul explained the good news of the gospel of the Colossians like this. Colossians chapter 2, you know these words? And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he cancel the record of debt that stood against us? This he set aside. Listen, nailing it to the cross. John takes all of this one step further when he explains that God sent Jesus to be the wrath bearer. Or more literally, the wrath absorber and the God satisfier for our Sins. We've been talking about this, this cup of wrath. First John chapter 4, in this is love. How do you define love? Not that we have loved God. Now friends, that's, that's good news. That love is not defined by how well you've done at loving God. Because we cannot set this standard in our own character. Here in His love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and did what? Sent His Son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. The appeasement of the wrath of God against my sin. From this, Paul concludes in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, friends, it's on the basis of all of this that he, Paul, based our understanding of the ministry of Christ in the language in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a text I alluded to earlier. I want to read the context. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just listen to these words. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. The Father made Christ Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to think about this tonight. I want you to weigh it. I want you to wrestle with it. I want you to be conquered by this truth. Friends, don't miss this. 
On Good Friday, Jesus Christ went to the cross and he drank down every bit of his Father's wrath toward sin so that there is not one drop left for me if I am found in him. This is what we celebrate when we turn our attention to the table. This is what we celebrate when we focus in on the gospel as we have this week. A few years ago, some of you know, I started writing some hymn texts, and the first one that I penned from a friend's, because of a friend's instigating, had to do with this very subject. And I thought tonight, before we go to the table, I might read this poem that has been an ongoing meditation of my own heart. I wrote this. Before the king whom seraphs praise... I stand condemned by evil ways. His law demands unfailing right, and on my guilt shines flawless light. O wretched thought that shatters me, my sin has broken God's decree. Perfect judge, unstained by sin, stores up his wrath for guilty men. My rebel heart makes me an heir of punishment I cannot bear. Oh, dreadful thought that crushes me. My sin makes me God's enemy. The father cursed his spotless son. For wicked deeds that I have done. And lavishly he counts as mine the the righteousness of Christ divine. Oh, grace-filled thought that staggers me. Christ took my sin and set me free. My God poured out His vengeance great like floods released with crushing weight. But Jesus drank that fury dry and now God's wrath is satisfied. Oh, glorious thought. How can it be? My King has no wrath left me. My friends, this is what our celebration on Good Friday is about. You are not made right with God because you've cleaned yourself up a little bit and are doing a little bit better than you used to be doing. You are made right with God because you are found in Christ and in Him alone, or you are not made right with God at all. Our confidence before God is never found 
in ourselves. It is found in our glorious, sufficient, substitutionary Savior who offered himself as a sacrifice in our place. How can it be? King, there's no wrath left for me. Father, thank you tonight for our Lord. Thank you for your truth and for the, the word that has declared to us these things. Father, we pray that you now would open our minds and our hearts. I pray that you would work in us these realities. So that, Father, we would be able to say, as we've noted already, that our confidence is never found in us. It is found in Christ alone who saves. We thank you for a spotless sacrifice, a substitute for us. We pray now that we might truly, all of us here, be truly found in him. Father, if there are any yet outside of Christ, I pray that you would work in them and that, Father, even tonight might be the night of their salvation. I pray for those of us who are on him now as we turn our attention to the table that we might honor you well with the way that we center our attention, confess our sin. Sing the praises and declare the truth of the death of our Lord. Father, might he be glorified. Might you be honored with all that's done. For it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.